the value of toleration. Let me get the, uh, if you'll put that slide up there, I'll like to just show a couple of things here. You can't see my uh, pillars very well, I guess. I picked the wrong deal here. I don't see which one of these things I'll use. This, there it is. But uh, the pillar here of toleration, uh, that is a value that seems to be held up in postmodernism, whereas in modernism, which most of us are familiar with, is a pillar that holds up the value of progress. And, of course, going back just after the Reformation, the pillar that, uh, that drew, grew out of the Reformation, out of the foundation of the Reformation, holds up the value of tradition. And what happened was progress became disillusioned with tradition or rejected tradition and uh, therefore went forward with, uh, with the whole concept of let's, let's progress as a society. And that's what we've been involved in for the last 100 years or so. But then in about uh, right after the post-war period, people began to become disillusioned with progress. It wasn't bringing, off, bringing bearing fruit that they expected it would bear in the human life. And so uh, they began to reject truth and insert the one thing, which is the value of toleration, of acceptance. And I don't mean toleration in the sense that you respect what another person believes and his right to believe it. I think all of us as believers in Jesus Christ would, would uh, reject the idea that anyone should be forced to believe anything and that everyone is entitled to their own opinion and to believe what they believe. On the other hand, toleration doesn't mean that today. It really means the idea that we need to recognize that all beliefs and all religions and all ideas have equal value and therefore can contribute something uh, to the greater good of wanting to know how we can relate to God or how we can understand our world. However, when it comes to toleration, the Word of God seems to shout out in our face a principle we should never forget. And the principle is this. And we encountered it just a couple weeks ago, and that is that toleration leads to tragedy. Toleration, in the sense of what postmodernism is looking at, toleration, leads to tragedy. And by extension, the principle that I want to talk about today is that great toleration leads to even greater tragedy. Tradition, apart from God leads to deadness. That was the problem of the Reformation period. Progress apart from God leads to disillusionment. That's the problem that we've had during the modern period. But toleration apart from God will lead to deception, then to disorder, and ultimately to despair. And the great cry will be, we need someone to lead us. Someone who can take a hold of this world and make it all come together again. And I believe that may be inevitably the greatest tragedy that will lead into the Great Tribulation period. It happened in the past history of the church, and it will happen again, only this time it will happen when the tragedy faces and confronts the whole world. In view of this, I would invite you this morning to follow along with me as we return to another look at the Church of Pergamos. And if you have your Bibles, you might open them up to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. 
Now, verse 17, which is also part of this section, we'll save for a couple weeks. But I want to look again at this portion of Scripture and show you some things that I think will be helpful this morning in understanding what it really is speaking to. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's Jesus Christ. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I'm come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let me just bring you back into this passage. Pergamos was a real city located in what we call today southwestern Turkey. It was a city with an overwhelming sense of religious devotion. A couple of weeks ago, we saw just how far the city went to demonstrate its loyalty to Rome, requiring every citizen in the city to burn a pinch of incense at the foot of Caesar's statue, holding and honoring him as God. Those who refused to do that were imprisoned or killed. However, the Pergamanians were not just into Caesar worship, they were into pagan worship. They reveled in it, as they'd done for centuries. Religious rites and duties, ceremonies and celebrations were ingrained in every aspect of life in Pergamos. It was a city that also had founded itself and prided itself in its cultural and intellectual atmosphere. Therefore, out of necessity, the people who lived in Pergamos were some of the most enlightened, open-minded, tolerant people in the ancient world. And in the midst of the city, the Lord Jesus Christ plants a church probably through the work of the Apostle Paul. A fervent, evangelical, Bible-believing church willing to stand against the horrors of persecution, yet like its city counterpart, it was also a tolerant church, a church that tolerated people in its midst, in its fellowship, who, like Balaam in the Old Testament, sought to entangle Christians in the pagan world about them. And they also tolerated other people they called the Nicolaitans. The word means conqueror of people. Who not only wanted Christians entangled in paganism, but who sought to conquer Christians, capture their hearts, and control them for their own purposes. Our Lord said He hated the Nicolaitans and promised to come and wage war against all the false teachers in the church with the sword of His mouth unless the church repent and throw them out of their fellowship. Now, it's not my purpose this morning to review the message from two weeks ago. However, the church at Pergamos, like its sister churches in Ephesus and Smyrna, and like the other four churches that we are yet going to look at next year, next fall, was also a prophetic church. That is, it was the kind of church that our Lord chose specifically to speak prophetically about the future from the standpoint of the church in the first century, a future time in the history of the whole church 
What do I mean by that? Uh, let me take the next slides if I could. This is a breakdown of the historical periods of the whole church according to Revelation, uh, chapters 2 and 3. And interestingly enough, just as well as church historians would break down the history of the church in much the same way. First of all, you have the church at Ephesus. The church, the word Ephesus means desired. And if you'll recall, the problem with Ephesus is they had trouble with their love life. They were leaving their first love, the Lord Jesus Christ. This spoke, the church at Ephesus was chosen specifically because it prophesied about the church as large, the whole church, during the apostolic age from about 30 to 100 A.D. And during that age of time, the main problem with the whole church was they continued to struggle with their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. They did it all right, but they weren't always on target. The next church is the church at Smyrna. As you recall, Smyrna comes from the word for myrrh, which was used in embalming and in death. It was a spice. And it spoke of persecution and suffering, which the church at Smyrna faced, specifically as a local church. But in 103-13 A.D., there was a period in the history of the church in which the whole church experienced persecution and suffering as well. And the church at Smyrna for, for predicted that, looked forward to that, or spoke about that coming time. Now we're in the church of Pergamos. The word Pergamos is basically two words from the Greek language, per, which is the word thorough, and gamos, which is the word for married. And so the word means literally thoroughly married. The problem with the church at Pergamos as an individual church was toleration, as we looked at two weeks ago. But the church at Pergamos also speaks of a period of time from 313 to 600 A.D., in which Emperor Constantine, that we'll look at in just a moment, from that time on, the church began a period in its history in which toleration and compromise marked the, the character of the church at large as well as the character of the individual church at Pergamos, which was speaking prophetically of this, uh, of this entire process. And then we can move on to Thyatira. We'll look at that next fall. Uh, the first church we'll be considering then in September. And the, the word for Thyatira in Greek means continual sacrifice, a very interesting word, and we'll look at that. And that would take us during the period of the church history from 600 to, to the present. Some would mark it off at 1517, but because of the nature of the passage that we'll be looking at, it sort of leaves it open-ended as if the Lord's coming back and we'll have a judgment upon that church at the end when he returns. But anyhow, the dark ages of the church is what that would uh, be a part of, and the main character of that church, both the individual church as well as the period of time, was corruption. Corruption. Now I'll have the next slide. We'll just briefly look at the next three churches. You have the church at Sardis here. The word Sardis means those escaping, and this would take us from 1517 until the present, I would believe, because of the nature of the passage, some would break it at, at uh, 1517 to about the end of the 1700. But anyhow, this was the rise of the Reformation, or the Reformation, the rise of the state or official church, and the mark or characteristic of this church, both individually as well as the period in church history, was deadness. Then you have the Church of Philadelphia. The Church of Philadelphia, the word means brotherly love. I know we're all familiar with that. The characteristic of the individual church is that it was weak and small, but it was faithful. It was also a church that foreshadowed or pictured prophetically 
a period in the church's history from about 1648 to the present. And that was a period of time that we're still living in, in which you have a church very devoted to fulfilling the Great Commission. This is where the Great Mission work uh, was born out of this period of time and continues today as a, as a ministry in which people, we would call ourselves evangelicals, who are interested in making disciples in fulfillment of the Great Commission. And the problem with the church, not a problem, but the character of the church is that it, it's weak, generally small and insignificant, but it's faithful and an open door has been given to it to accomplish a work for the Lord. Lastly, you have the church of Laodicea. The word laos is the word for people, and this is a, a decia refers to ruling. You have the people ruling. And the characteristic of the church at Laodicea was lukewarmness. It also speaks about a period in the church history which I think would basically have begun somewhere around the end of last century, uh, 1900, 1890, that area, until the present time. And it is an age of apostasy in which people have become indifferent or lukewarm or it's just a matter of going through the motions of their Christian faith. And so this is the breakdown. All of these seven churches are looking forward and picturing a period in the history of the church. Now, our Lord chose these seven churches specifically. He had a purpose in mind. And they were typical of the church of all churches in all times, we all can find things that we can learn from each church. On the other hand, these seven churches also characteristically represent a time in the history of the whole church. Now, in a sense, the church at Pergamos was chosen to represent the whole church during a very crucial time in the history of the church. In fact, this might be looked upon as the church that was in place at a watershed moment in the history of the church, a watershed moment that has forever changed the church in many ways. A time when most of the church was fervent, evangelical, Bible-believing, if you use our terminology today, a time when the church was emerging as a, a victor over the horrors of persecution, which was typified in the church of Smyrna. A time, and of course these persecutions were inflicted upon the church in the first and second century by Rome. And then we get to the third century, and you have this church that's just emerging from persecution. They're hardcore, devoted believers in Jesus Christ. And then something happens that hits them by surprise. A time of enormous potential as many, having witnessed the faith of martyrs, came boldly into the church and themselves wanted to follow Jesus Christ with a wholehearted devotion. This was the church at Pergamos. But then Satan adopted a new strategy. A strategy the whole church was not prepared for at the time. Instead of using the world to persecute the church out of existence, Satan determined to bring, into the, bring the world into the church. It was a brilliant strategy looking at it from his viewpoint that had worked years before in the church, the individual church at Pergamon. Now he would employ this technique not only on one church, but on the whole church at a period in its history of development. The strategy was simple, and it was typified in the name of the church of Pergamos, thoroughly married. And that was Satan would want and desire 
to marry the church to the world and the world to the church. And it was a marriage like any good marriage that was based on acceptance. On acceptance. It was an age when the church stood there, opened the doors, and let the world walk in. Bringing with it all kinds of corruptible ideas and practices. The church welcomed all the new people and embraced the power and privileges she'd never dreamed of having before. However, years before, in his letter of to the church at Pergamos, the Lord Jesus Christ said, toleration will lead to tragedy. And great toleration will lead to even greater tragedy. It was a prophecy that would come to pass in this age for the church at large. Now you might be asking, what are you talking about, Arch? What's going on? How could the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, particularly full of fervent, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians, ever marry the world? To help us understand that, I'm going to just touch a few highlights from a two-hour message that I preached back in 1993. And I don't know that I could get by with that today. I did it on a Sunday night, and I told everybody, bring a pillow. This is a two-hour message. And we did get a good crowd out. But uh, in any case, it was a tracing of religion through the ages. But in recent years, I've noticed as I've kept track of this whole theme in my readings, I've noticed that the feminist movement, I really am indebted to them, because the feminist movement has really done a lot in their research for the, to prove that there was a mother goddess that was part of all religions and therefore gives credibility to their idea that God was mother, not just God father. They've done a lot of research that's backed up or corroborated what I and I know others that have studied this subject have also found. And uh, it's interesting when you're, those that oppose you agree with you it gives a little more weight to what you're saying. And uh, what I'm sharing with you comes, of course, from the Bible. It comes also from Christian books that I've read, and it comes from fields of study in history and archaeology. And my files just continue to grow, and it's interesting. I mean, almost every year there's three or four articles that I come across that have been written mostly by feminists determined to make a case for the mother goddess. And we're going to look at that. Now, I'm just going to hit some high points right now, but to help you understand what happened in 313 A.D. and following that, that turned the church around in a direction that led to enormous tragedy. Now, the story's going to sound a little wild, and you're probably going to think I've lost my marbles, but I'd like for you just to hang in there. Four generations after the flood of Noah we read about a rebellious man named Nimrod. And he was a man bent on conquering people, capturing hearts, and making them willing subject of his kingdom, which began in Babylon, where he built a city as well as a famous tower called the Tower of Babel. Secular history and tradition tells us that Nimrod married a woman who was as evil and demonic as himself, her name was Semiramis, although she has other names like Ishtar and various names that uh, have been given to her down through history and in various places. Knowing of God's promise at this time, living close to the flood, close to the time when that tradition from the scripture 
was passed on from one generation to the next. She took that promise from Genesis 3.15 where it talked about the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and thus deliver mankind from the, from the damage that the serpent had inflicted upon man. Knowing that promise from God of a future Savior in Genesis 3.15, Semiramis, this wife of Nimrod, brazenly claimed that Tammuz, her son, fulfilled the prophecy. Semiramis therefore, therefore instituted a religious system which made both her and her son the objects of divine worship. She herself became the first high priestess and thus began her mother-child cult, which later spread all over the world, beginning with the city of Babylon. Semiramis also created what became known as the Babylonian Mysteries, which involved elaborate rites of initiation, the drinking of special potents, potions, as well as the taking of secret oaths and using of magic and astrology and other things that were associated with the occult. What she created was a religion that took hold among others who also were in rebellion against the true God. Her son Tammuz, a counterfeit Messiah, became the deified son of promise to her followers. But the whole thing didn't stop there. Eventually it encompassed not just the worship of the son Tammuz, but it extended to the worship of Semiramis herself, who eventually even eclipsed her son in glory and became the mother goddess who embodied the beauty and the ideas of femininity. And by the way, this is the mother goddess that the feminists want to capture and present to the world today. Here are just a few things that she said and did. She adopted the title Queen of Heaven. When she appeared publicly, she cradled the child Tammuz in her arms, boldly claiming that he was miraculously conceived. He was the seed of the woman. Number three, with the child in her arms, she pictured herself as the one who would give life, one who would become the mother of grace and mercy in contrast to her son, Tammuz, who would be represented in ages to come as delighting in blood and sacrifice and suffering in his devotees. She used the first initial of Tammuz's name, the sacred Tau or T, as a symbol to identify her true worshipers. The symbol was placed often on the foreheads of those who worshipped in the secret religion. She instituted a priestly order which further worshipped, which furthered the worship of the mother goddess and her child, and also an order of virgins who were devoted to religious prostitution. She originated the tradition that Tammuz on one occasion was out hunting and that he was slain by a wild boar. Then she commanded all the temple virgins to fast for 40 days. At the end of the 40-day period, at the Feast of Ishtar, where our word Easter comes from, another name for Samaritan herself, Tammuz was supposedly miraculously resurrected. Therefore, the Feast of Ishtar was made an annual feast every spring. She set aside the egg to be exchanged at this festival as a symbol of life out of death. Number seven, she established the offering of special cakes. In Anglo-Saxon days, they were called buns. And on these cakes was a mystic towel or cross, and thus you have hot cross buns. Number eight, she set aside the 25th of December as the birthday of Tammuz. The sun was Tammuz's symbol, and when the sun began its sweep back across the earth, it was a reminder of the birth of Tammuz, and out of this grew a joyous, drunken, 
orgy mentioned earlier, and she also used the palm tree to symbolize the perpetual life of Tammuz. Number nine, she became the most important person to be worshipped even beyond Tammuz because she would complete what Tammuz never finished. She would crush the head of the serpent, not her son. So she's taking Genesis 3.15 and twisting it. And thus we see artistic portrayals of the mother goddess with a spear in her hand stabbing the head of a snake. And you find these in archaeology and various caves and artistic drawings and things of that nature, that uh, figurines, things that were made. Those things existed in the ancient world, and that's what you see, the mother goddess with the spear spearing the head of the snake. Samarimus, the queen of heaven, the final and the ultimate deliverer, ultimate deliverer, after she died, it is recorded that Bacchus, another name for Tammuz, came down into hell and took her in triumph to heaven. She was immortalized and worshipped with great devotion. And after that, pagans began a tradition in which she was considered to be immaculately conceived. Now, you would think that this kind of folk legend would soon die out. Instead, it was centered in Babylon. People would drift through Babylon, which was a, a main thoroughfare for activity in the ancient world. And they would pick up little, beats, little bits and pieces, a little here, a little there, of this religion, and they would take it back to their tribes, back to their nations, back to their regions, and spread it. And so from Babylon, it spread to Phoenicia under the name of Ashtaroth and Tammuz. In Egypt, the mother-child cult was known as Isis and Horus. In Greece, it became Aphrodite and Eros. In Rome, it was a pair worshipped as Venus and Cupid. In China, it became known as the mother Qingmu and her child. In Mexico, an image was found and authenticated as belonging to the period 200 years before Christ, where it was the center of religious worship among the early Indians of Mexico, and the image was of a mother with a child in her arms. And it continues to spread, or continued spreading to India, to Europe, to Germany, to Britain, to Tibet, to Japan, and even to the Polynesian Islands. Bits and pieces of the legend spread all over the world and became a foundation for other legends and religious ideas that grew up, mythologies, if you will. And it flourished, influencing all peoples and all religions. And it was actually the first religion Man's first attempt to put God aside and develop his own God, one after his own liking, and worship that God and serve him. It even perverted the Israelites, who were in danger of being judged by God because of their participation in the religion. Ezekiel was told to go look and peer into the temple in Ezekiel chapter 8. And God says, go look and see what you see. And he goes and looks and he sees a woman weeping for Tammuz. And God is offended that in his temple you have women sitting around weeping for Tammuz. Jeremiah in our chapter 7, verse 18, it says, And the women need their dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. In Jeremiah 44, it says, To burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. That's what the people were doing. But no one had established the system the ecclesiastical tradition, and refined it and organized it as efficiently as Babylon itself. We can talk about how it spread to the world and how it even affected Israel, but Babylon was king when it came to this religion. 
Furthermore, her king in Babylon served as the high priest of this religion. And under him was an extensive organization of priests dedicated and organized to introduce the empty masses to the empty masses of people, the mysteries of this ancient religion. However, eventually Babylon was destroyed. Her golden years began to fade and she began to weak, became weak. Finally, a power from the northwest, Media Persia, swept down on Babylon under Cyrus and destroyed the king of Babylon and completely desecrated the whole land. Now, the priest who were under the king, who was the high priest and who had been killed, fled for their lives. They ran off and migrated westward looking for another home, another center for the Babylonian mystery religion. Finally, they came and they found a place, a place where it could be practiced and propagated. And once again, the mysteries that they had worked so hard to develop in Babylon could now again be given to the people. What was that place? You're going to be shocked. It was Pergamos. Not Rome at this point, but Pergamos. Pergamos was, at that point, became the seat, 500 years before Christ, became the seat of the Babylonian religion with all of its frantic orgies and excesses. And the kings of Pergamos were considered gods and became the high priest, just as they did in Babylon. And furthermore, the whole city was given over to this worship of the mother goddess and her son. The true God of heaven would call this, a number of years later, a city in which Satan dwells, the site of Satan's throne. And perhaps I know at the time it may have been understood as a reference to Rome, but I think God in his infinite wisdom saw that it has extension way beyond Rome to a religion that had become so part of the culture. But then something happened. Pergamos under one of its kings, was given over to Rome, which embraced the Babylonian mystery religion along with its mother-child cult. Soon the seat of the Babylonian mystery religion with its mother-child cult was shifting to Rome, and it became centered in Rome. Around 100 AD, Julius Caesar took the title Pontifex Maximus, or high priest of the Babylonian mystery religion itself. By the time of Christ, Roman Caesars were crowned with two titles. One title was Emperor of the Roman Empire. The second title was Pontifex Maximus of the mystery religion with its focus on the mother-child cult, which had been handed down from ancient Babylon. And, of course, with that Babylonian mystery religion came all that went with it, the 40 days of fasting before Tammuz's death and resurrection, supposed resurrection, the hot cross buns, the Easter eggs, the tree, the birthday celebration, the whole thing. About the year of 300 A.D., an emperor by the name of Constantine, an emperor of Rome, was engaged in a civil war with another emperor who claimed to be the emperor of Rome, Maxentius. The forces of Maxentius appeared to be much stronger than those of Constantine. Constantine realized he was going to need reinforcements, which would require a lot of support from people throughout the Roman Empire. So he thought about a very influential group of people, the Christians. A strange thing, because for the last two centuries, Rome had been trying to stamp out the Christians, extinguish them. 
Now, all of a sudden, they realized that they couldn't extinguish him, and more and more people kept wanting to follow Jesus Christ. And they were, as they witnessed the devotion of those who would become martyrs in Rome. And so suddenly, this group that was small to begin with, because of persecution, had grown to enormous proportions. The next thing we see is Constantine claiming to have seen in the sky, and you're familiar with the story, we touched on it last fall, a flag, and on the flag was a sign of words, or the words inscribed, in this sign, conquer. And in the lower right-hand side of the flag was a red cross. Constantine took that to mean, upon winning a victory over Maxentius, he would declare the whole Roman Empire Christian and work to bring all his subjects into the Christian religion. And you know, he could do that because he was the Pontifex Maximus, the high priest who had authority over religion and over the state. He won the battle and immediately declared his conversion to Christianity as he promised and began to make good on that promise. In the years to come, Constantine, as Pontifex Maximus, would lead the whole Roman Empire into the visible church of Jesus Christ. They would go to the same temple... They were led by the same, uh, the same priest. They used the same identifying sign of the cross. They performed the same ceremonial rites. They followed the same calendar year with all of its festivals, rituals, and Lent, and Easter and Easter eggs and so forth, hot cross buns and the tree at Christmas and all that. And then they worshipped the same mother-child cult and in the same way the mother goddess eclipsed the sun. Now, I want to make something clear. You're thinking, and I can understand why, that I'm talking about Roman Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not talking about Roman Catholicism here. It does not exist yet, friends. We're talking about the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about part of our own church history. We're talking about fervent Bible-believing, God-fearing, fervent, evangelical Christians who a few years earlier had friends who were eaten by lions, whose relatives had been burned at the stake. These weren't pagan Christians. These were hardcore Christians. How could they let such a thing happen? In the church of Jesus Christ, a church that they were willing to die for. And we go back to what our Lord said to the church at Pergamum, which reflected not only the problem that would be existing in Pergamum, but the problem that would exist in the church one day in this period. But I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now keep in mind that the church at Pergamos is a historical church, but it's also a prophetic church. Pointing forward to a period of time, the whole church would fail just as they failed in Pergamos, in the local church. And how did the church fail? She tolerated those who would cause her to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. She tolerated the Nicolaitans, the people conquerors, who wanted to rule over the church and make it serve their own purposes. These people, Jesus says, I hate them, 
so much that I will come and fight against them and cause war within the church with the sword of my mouth being the word of God. Now, I want you to notice something. And I want to emphasize this again. The church did not hold to this false system. The church did not reach out and embrace the Babylonian religion. The church simply tolerated those who wanted to reach out and embrace the Babylonian system. And there's a big difference. And when it came to the people who held to the Babylonian mystery religion, no one was more influential, more visible than Constantine himself. Few men have so completely swept the church off its feet as Constantine. He was one person the church was always ready to tolerate. Accepting whatever he wanted to do, it's good. Even knowing that he was also the high priest of the Babylonian mystery religion, and he was going to bring part of it into the church, but not all of it. He may even have had good intentions of trying to make the two fit together, trying to bring about a a thoroughly good marriage between the Babylonian mystery religion and Christianity. And why did the church go along? Just a few years before, they would have gone to the stake if a Roman emperor challenged them. But now they were going along with a Roman emperor. Why? What the change? How did Constantine, Constantine convince Christians that he was on their team? And that God was with him in what he was doing. First of all, he exempted the Christian clergy from military and municipal duty. That was in 313, one year after his victory over Maxentius. Next, he abolished various customs and ordinances that were offensive to Christians, such as fights in the Colosseum. No more bloodbaths. That was in 315. Next, he facilitated the emancipation of Christian slaves, since most Christians up to that point were slaves. That was in 316. Next, he legalized bequests to Christian churches, enriching and endowing the church at large. That was in 321. Next, he made it a law that everyone had to observe the Christian Sabbath, that is Sunday, although not as Christians had been observing it as the Lord's Day, but now as the Son's Day. That was a little bone for the pagans because the sun was the symbol for Tammuz. Next, Constantine contributed liberally to the building of churches and the support of the clergy. Pagan temples were converted to churches and pagan priests were encouraged to make a quick change in the Christian priesthood. He converted, most importantly, pagan doctrine into Christian doctrine. He erased heathen symbols of Jupiter, Apollo, Mars, and Hercules from imperial coins. He gave his sons a Christian education. Furthermore, he advanced Christians to high office. He elevated women. He, he encouraged family life. He made welfare available for the poor, widows, and orphans. He created the kind of social and economic situation which made prosperity something within the grasp of the common man. And the people rushed in. They just rushed in to Christianity. Constantine had been running for president of the United States of America, the religious right would have been out in full force to vote for him. You can almost hear Bible-believing Christians, evangelicals, who should have known better, saying, look at all the people that are being saved. 
Thousands and thousands are turning to Christ because of the example and encouragement of our God-sent emperor, Constantine. People everywhere, soldiers and slaves and tradesmen and professional people, they were all coming to Christ. Tremendous conversions. God must really be at work. After all, how can you argue with success? Christianity was sweeping the Roman Empire. This is a pretty clear case of solid, Bible-believing evangelical Christians being swept off their feet by someone who speaks their language, who holds their traditions, by someone who upholds the family, and who holds the kind of morality and thinking that they hold to. How easy it would be to say, go ahead, brother, take it away. And that's what they said. And Constantine took it away. And everybody became Christian. And Constantine worked hard to keep everybody happy and everybody on his side. He didn't have many enemies. Where did such toleration on the part of the church lead? About 50 years after Constantine first started his crusade to bring the Roman Empire into the church, many Christians had ended up living like aristocracy, rich, fat, and at ease. Listen to this description by one of the people, one of the Christians who was part of this aristocracy that was alive at the time. This is what he writes, translated into English. We repose in splendor on high and sumptuous cushions upon the most exquisite covers which one is almost afraid to touch and are vexed if we but hear the voice of a morning of a moaning pauper. Our chamber must breathe the odor of flowers, even rare flowers. Our table must flow with the most fragrant and costly ointment so that we become perfectly effeminate. Slave must, slaves must stand ready, richly adorned in an order, and waving maiden-like hair, faces shorn perfectly smooth, much adorned throughout that is good for lascivious eyes. Some to hold cups with their Delicately and firmly with the tips of their fingers, others to fan fresh air upon the head. Our table must bend under the load of dishes, while all the kingdoms of nature, air, water, and earth furnish copious contributions. The poor man is content with water, but we will fill our goblet with wine. We refuse one wine, another we pronounce excellent when well flavored. That was a Christian who had been elevated into the Christian aristocracy at the time. But what about the common man? As he rushed out to embrace this new religion that had swept over the Roman Empire, what happened to him? As he tried to come into this religion with its sacrifice and its baptismal regeneration and its penance and its self-inflicted cleansing and its prayers for the dead and its use of beads to mark off prayer and its worship of relics and holy places and signs of the cross and its orders of celibates, priests and its virgins, of nuns and virgins and its festival celebrations, what happened to the pagan man or woman who had come into that religion called Christianity at that time? Was that man or woman born again? He put, it, he put his body on a, a, a pew or a seat, but was he born again? Did he trust Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life? Unlikely. He became a Christian in name only. His God was the Blessed Mother Goddess. 
And where did that take him? It took him right where he came from. Right into darkness. Right into spiritual poverty. Thousands and thousands of people marched into Christianity looking for something different, but found the same old things, only dressed up in some different clothing. How tragic. And that's the point. Where there is great toleration, there will inevitably come great tragedy. Toleration is something we should take lightly, friends. It's something we must treat severely. I point you again to the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 6. Tells the Corinthians, who themselves were in danger of playing footsies with the world, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has a temple has the temple of God with idols? If you are the temple of the living God, your bodies, as God has said, I dwell in them and walk among them, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God's goal is to develop rich, caring, loving community of believers. And by rich, I mean spiritually rich. Not a physically rich aristocracy. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not looking for masses of people who have no real interest in Him. Our Lord invites all people to receive the gift of eternal life through faith in Him. Through faith in Jesus Christ. A faith that is not coerced or socially orchestrated from a so-called Christian state. Constantine was a man of vision. But his vision, I fear, was not of a humble and willing Savior dying on a rugged cross for the sins of all mankind. His vision was to marry the Christian faith to the Roman Empire as he knew it. And toward the end, he could not have been more successful. What lesson is there here for us? I'd like to close with the words of Josh McDowell. He's a Christian author and speaker, youth worker for a number of years. And he reminds us to humbly pursue truth. It may be difficult to speak the truth in today's climate, but Jesus said the truth will set you free. Pursuing truth in this context means countering the new doctrine of tolerance that we face today in our world. Josh McDowell goes on and he writes, It means teaching our children to embrace all people but not all beliefs. It means showing them how to listen to and learn from all people without necessarily agreeing with them. It means helping them courageously but humbly speak the truth even if it makes them the object of scorn or hatred. We must always remember, however, that when the Apostle Paul told us, Peter told us, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone that asks you for the hope that is within you. He added, but do this with gentleness and respect. We must aggressively practice love. Everyone loves love, it seems, but few recognize how incompatible love is with the new tolerance. Tolerance simply avoids offending someone 
We must help our children live in love which actively seeks to promote the good of another person. Tolerance says, you must approve of what I do. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will love you even when your behavior offends me. Tolerance says, you must agree with me. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will tell you the truth because I'm convinced the truth will set you free. Tolerance says, you must allow me to have my way. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will plead with you to follow the right way because I believe you are worth the risk. Tolerance seeks to be inoffensive. Love takes risk. Tolerance glorifies division. Love seeks unity. Tolerance costs nothing. Love costs everything. May God help us to love others and to teach our children to love others by not becoming party to toleration, but to speaking the truth in love. Our gracious God and Father, help us to take to heart what we've looked at this morning. Encourage us, Lord, to stand in these times that are becoming increasingly difficult. Pressures come from all sides, and we pray for your help. And may Jesus Christ be pleased. In his name we ask it. We're going to turn in our uh, hymnals to page 321. Uh, Number 321, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Uh, We're going to sing the first and the last. Please stand. And please stand, yes. (laughs) 